Contraception is not a new idea. Some form of it had existed since at least ancient Egypt, and one version of birth control, Clutus Interruptus, has even been recorded in the Bible. While the famous Spartans practiced infanticide, which was probably common until surprisingly recently, and abortion too has been practiced for many years, with no amount of legislation ever stopping that. While of course there were potions that were supposed to reduce libido and stop any possibility of intercourse, and these were of course prohibited by the Catholic Church, but like many of the Catholic Church's ordinances, these too were ignored. There have been many blocks and prohibitions on such talk of contraception. In the 1830s, Charles Noton was prosecuted, fined and sentenced to hard labour for the book The Fruits of Philosophy or the Private Companion of Young Married People. Over the course of the 19th century, there was a natural reduction on the number of children born in England, with marriage rates slowly increasing, meaning the obvious biological impact on the number of children born. However, the slow decline in birth rates cannot all be put down to later marriage. With the increasing prosperity and longer lives of children, there was a natural desire to reduce the number of children families were having. Perhaps abortion and infanticide were parts of this, but there are some snapshots of society that helps us guess as to the reasons why. This being the Victorian and Edwardian period, we have very little, if no actual data, but there are some clues as to what our great-great-great-great-grandparents were up to in the bedroom. With Margaret Asquith, wife of Prime Minister Henry Asquith, telling Cynthia Mosley, on whose husband would later be the leader of the British fascists, that, quote, Henry always withdrew in time. Such a noble man. Close quotes. So, it is reasonable to suggest that this was a primary method of contraception for Henry Asquith and all the way down society too. But necessity is the mother of invention, and if the most reliable source of contraception is relying on a guy to pull out, then women would lap up this new invention. Before easy contraception, life was terrifying for women. Obviously now, we are still worried about unplanned pregnancies, but it was nothing like it was before the pill was invented. I would like to quote the situation for women during the 19th century from Richard J. Evans's The Pursuit of Power, Europe, 1815-1914. Quote, the only completely safe contraceptive method was abstinence, and since it was women who bore the risk of pregnancy and all consequent burdens, it was women who began to repress their sexual feelings. Daughters had to remain chaste until marriage, for here too, an unwanted pregnancy could ruin a family's reputation and impose undesirable financial burdens on it. Ideas of Victorian morals, with gynaecologist Paul Zweifel saying in 1900 that contraception quote, can only serve lust. Close quotes, slowly began to change following the vulcanisation of rubber, 
That's the ability to make rubber harder and not anything to do with Mr. Spock. It allowed for the production of condoms, but they were unreliable and expensive. While nationalists in many parts of Europe frowned upon birth control for reducing population and therefore military power. For much of history, apart from the obvious fact that a man has to ejaculate into a woman, nobody quite knew how procreation worked. Natural philosophers during the Renaissance thought babies came from a seed. Aristotle thought semen had to be mixed with menstrual blood, and almost all people thought women had to have an orgasm to warm up their body to generate the heat that the seed needed to spring to life. And it's a shame this isn't true, as then I'd have no worries about ever getting a woman pregnant. It wasn't until the 17th century that William Harvey suggested that people actually came from eggs. Contraception had never been properly investigated for two reasons. Firstly, there were almost no women scientists, and secondly, society from Abraham to ancient Rome, the Catholic Church, to Victorian England, told women they were not supposed to enjoy sex. Birth control and abortion were outlawed, and the only way to control family sizes was often by illegal abortions. Attitudes began to change at the start of the 20th century. Sigmund Freud wrote that unconscious minds were powerful and that sexual urges required gratification. Obviously, most Americans never read Freud, but when they heard there was a respected academic endorsing sex as a recreation, they became instant believers. One of the early converts to Freud was Margaret Sanger, who we'll get back to later in the episode. Women were almost forced to get married young in order to have sex. Most women knew about birth control like condoms, but the judgmental nature of the time meant that even condoms required a doctor's prescription, and there is a lot of testimony of women getting terrified of getting pregnant after wedlock. The other reason for the need for birth control was now the huge families people were having. There were always large families, but with the improvement in medical science, most children were living past childhood. So if you had seven children, the chances were you would have seven adolescents too. With the growth in population, the idea that there was some need to reduce population sizes was growing. If contraception was framed in terms of increasing a woman's ability to have sex for pleasure, then there probably wouldn't be a simple-to-use contraception even today. Framed in terms of population control, however, and it was a lot easier for male scientists, such as Gregory Pincus, to stomach. Two people started the sexual revolution. Margaret Sanger, who popularised birth control, and biologist Gregory Pincus. Both people were well known during their lives. Pincus was one of the foremost experts on mammalian reproduction and attempted to breed rabbits in petri dishes, a technique that would later lead to in vitro fertilization. The American media at the time likened Pincus to Victor Frankenstein. This backlash against Pincus led to him not getting tenure at Harvard and effectively blacklisted from work at universities. The other pioneer was Margaret Sanger, 
who opened the United States' first birth control clinic in 1916, which provided condoms and cervical cups, which were ineffective, impractical, and hard to get. The two people later met, and Sanger said to Pincus that she was looking for an inexpensive, easy-to-use, and completely foolproof method for contraception. Sanger was a woman who enjoyed sex, and wanted something a woman could use, with or without a man's consent, something that would enable sex in the spur of the moment, and not something that required messy fumbling. She wanted something where there was no compromise on pleasure, and something that would not affect a woman's future fertility. Sanger had already approached other scientists, who had declined her for a variety of reasons. Some said it was dirty work, some said it wasn't technically possible, and that they would do it, but it would give them a bad reputation. There was also the legal aspect. 30 states and the federal government had anti-birth control laws on the statute. What would even be the point of such an invention? Pincus, however, had nothing to lose. In early 1951, when Pincus and Sanger met at a Manhattan diner, there was a strong need for better contraception. Even as early as the 1920s, about one-third of pregnancies ended in illegal abortions. The end of the Second World War was, as we talked about in the episode on rock and roll, the height of Americana. The men were war heroes, and the women who had been working during the war, for the first time, had disposable incomes like never before. Alfred Kinsey had published several reports on sexual behaviour, and he found that 85% of people admitted to premarital sex, 50% acknowledged extramarital affairs, and almost everybody had masturbated. This report was read by many people, including a young sociology graduate called Hugh Hefner. Sanger proposed to Pincus that the two start a revolution. Not a revolution with bombs, guns or war, but a revolution of sexual pleasure. In wars you face an army, an army with generals and guns and tanks. Sanger and Pincus were fighting a war against something far more terrifying than that, radical Christianity and American Puritanism. The challenge they faced was something that had faced women for thousands of years, to have sex and to avoid pregnancy. And so the two started by hiring a Chinese scientist, M.C. Chang. Thinking he was going to be working in one of the great research institutions, as Pincus had previously worked at Harvard, Chang ended up on a minuscule salary of $2,000 and living in a YMCA, and later on a small bed in the corner of the converted lab. Chang started by trying to repeat a 1937 experiment that reported that injections of progesterone prevented ovulation in rabbits. While the breakthrough had been important at the time, it had never been followed up on humans because, as we've previously discussed, there was nothing in it for the scientists in doing this type of work. Pincus's idea was to look for a simple yet radical solution. So, are you ready for some GCSE biology? Women produce an egg every 28 days. The egg moves down the fallopian tube towards the uterus. 
If a man ejaculates inside a woman, about half a billion sperm fight to fertilise the egg. If the egg is not fertilised, it can't implant itself inside the lining of the womb, and the egg is discharged along with the lining of the uterus. If it is fertilised, the egg will attach itself to the wall of the uterus. This is where pregnancy starts, and during this period, the zygote becomes an embryo, and an embryo becomes a fetus. Oestrogen and progesterone lead the pregnancy. Progesterone is in charge of lining the uterus. Progesterone prepares the uterus for implantation and closes off the ovaries so no more eggs can be released. Nature, kind of, already provides a natural contraceptive. The idea, as you might have already worked out, was to trick the body into thinking it was already pregnant. If a woman didn't release any eggs, she could not get pregnant. So Pincus and Chang began adjusting the doses of progesterone on rabbits. One of their main problems was that sex had hardly been studied. Medical textbooks lacked entries for penis or vagina, and William Masters and Virginia Johnson, two pioneers of sexual study and the focus of the TV show Masters of Sex, said that scientists never studied sex as they were scared of public opinion. Chang began the arduous work of feeding tiny amounts of liquid progesterone. Endless hours were spent in the lab, and whenever a rabbit died, he had to cut it open to see if any egg had been released. After the work on rabbits was complete, they moved on to rats, which are far more like humans biologically. A female rat can mate 500 times, with various males in only about 6 hours, which is some going. Chang caged male and female rats together and injected them with progesterone. The experiment worked and there were no pregnant rats. The larger the dose, the longer lasting the effects. In 1952, Pincus filed a report to Planned Parenthood that 10 milligrams of progesterone had suppressed ovulation in 90% of rabbits. Pincus's idea was the Manhattan Project for Sex with one in four women reporting at least one unwanted pregnancy, it was, Pincus thought, an opportunity to be grabbed. Planned Parenthood, the foundation Sanger set up, didn't take Pincus up on the pill. The leader was William Voigt, and he didn't think that the hormonal idea was the best way for contraception to work. Without Planned Parenthood putting up the funds for such an experiment, they would have to find a private investor. And what man is going to fund female birth control? This is where Catherine Dexter McCormick takes off her helmet in full Lord of the Rings style to proclaim, I am no man. In 1950, she was one of the richest women in the world, and a widow. The man she married, Stanley McCormick, displayed bizarre behaviour almost from the moment they married. Ten months after the marriage, they hadn't yet consummated it. Even talk of sex disturbs the family, and eventually doctors diagnosed him with schizophrenia. Catherine, however, refused to divorce him. Catherine spent a lot of money trying to find a cure for Stanley. 
with hormones only being discovered the year after they were married, in 1905, Catherine believed these were the answer to Stanley's problems. With an ineffective husband and no children that she desperately wanted, Catherine began to find alternative paths in life. She became Vice President of the National American Women's Suffrage Association in 1920, and after women got the vote, she was the first Vice President of the League of Women Voters. In the summer of 1921, she met Sanger and organised the first American Birth Control Conference at the Plaza Hotel. McCormick was fascinated by birth control, worried in the first instant about the possibility that her husband's illness could be passed on, and the other possibility that she thought that without birth control, a woman was a mere breeder. There was no point of women going into further education or getting a career if all they would enjoy in future was getting pregnant over and over again. In 1927, at McCormick's house, she hosted the world's first World Population Conference, the first international summit of birth control. In 1947, Stanley McCormick died. Millions had been spent on his hospital bills. By today's standards, $1.1 million for every year for 40 years had been spent on his treatments. After several years of wrangling with the IRS, McCormick settled his estate and she knew what she wanted to do with all his time and money that was now entirely hers. In 1952, Sanger approached McCormick to tell her about the progress on the pill. By this point, the pill was 90% effective, while McCormick went to visit to see what was going on in the lab. McCormick, having got this far, was looking for the final breakthrough on the combination of what progesterone compound was best, so the decision was made to test it on human women. To do this, a gynaecologist was needed. After some searching, John Roth was hired, an interesting choice. He was such a strict Catholic as a child, he would confess to a priest whenever he felt a sexual urge or an erection. However, he grew out of his Catholicism and developed an open-mindedness about sex that you might not have expected. During his earlier years, he vehemently opposed birth control and believed it was nonsense for women to want to delay having children for the prospects of a career. In 1925, he married his wife and had their first child 11 months after marrying. Four more children came in the next six years. Then he had an epiphany. In 1931, he was the only Catholic to sign a petition calling for the repeal on the Massachusetts ban on contraception. Rock and his wife then had no more children. With Rock joining the crusade, the Fab Four of the pill was invented, or if you prefer, the pill four. In the early 1950s, before joining the team, Rock was doing the opposite to Pincus. He was giving hormone to try and induce pregnancy. It seemed that the idea was working, and Pincus was delighted that injecting hormones into women was having the effect Rock wanted. Hormones clearly had something to do with that area of a woman's body, and both Pincus and Rock were even happier that women weren't dropping dead. However, later on, when Rock went to look back at the results, 
he saw that the hormones stopped the menstrual cycle, induced nausea and enlargement of the breasts, and was giving the appearance of pregnancy. But the women weren't getting pregnant. Happy that Rock's work proved women weren't getting harmed, he wanted to test this injection out on women. And for these women to submit daily tests of body temperatures, daily vaginal smears, urine tests, endometrial biopsies, which was the taking of small samples from the tissue in the lining of the uterus. By essentially lying to Rock's patients, Pincus was able to round up volunteers from Rock's tests to get them to do the experiments. By saying he was working on fertility treatments, he could claim he wasn't participating in birth control experiments on women, which would have made him liable to five years in prison as per state laws. Perhaps due to his unattached nature, or his desperation to make something of himself, he was able to carry through with this lie. Had he been at a university, an ethics board would have seen straight through him. One reason why Pincus may have been exiled from mainstream science was that he was critical of scientists who were content with safety and merely writing journal articles. He was aggressive in his belief in the power of science. Pincus believed himself more of an activist, a crusader or a businessman than he did a scientist. Pincus was of course breaking the ethics of experiments, but he was not breaking any actual laws. The US in the 1950s were extremely lax, which enabled Pincus's lie, or some might say, without such lax rules, it may have taken decades for birth control to actually have been invented. In 1953, Pincus and Rock enlisted 27 patients, all drawn from Rock's fertility trial. All the women enlisted were infertile, but nobody knew what was causing their infertility. In Rock's trial, the women had a progesterone-estrogen mix. In this trial, they would have the progesterone tablet that Pincus had been developing. They received the pill three weeks out of four to allow them to menstruate. Four of the women got pregnant, and 15% showed signs of ovulation, significantly worse than with the rabbits and the rats. A contraceptive pill with an 85% success rate was simply not good enough. One of the main problems, which Pincus didn't realise, was that progesterone was not particularly effective when taken orally. Had he injected the women with it, it might have had better results. But who wants to be injected every single day? It wasn't the elegant solution he had hoped for. Little did he know at the time, but the solution he was looking for was a modified synthetic progesterone pill developed by Russell Maker 10 years before, which was four to eight times more effective and designed to be absorbed into the digestive tract. With experiments ongoing, there was a constant and obvious need for more money. Science experiments don't fund themselves. Pincus was living off a small grant from Planned Parenthood of $17,500, which was already half paid for by McCormick. But when she visited the lab, she asked how much money he needed. He said $125,000. The next day, McCormick said she would write another check for $10,000. McCormick, however, a few months later, was not satisfied. She complained about the lack of progress being made though she was an impatient woman in general. She once said Christmas irritated her because no work ever got done during the festive period.
Pincus believed that he needed a better way to get chemical compounds with progesteronic activity in it, so he asked pharmaceutical companies to send him chemical experiments. Eventually, having given Chang the task to test them out, he stumbled upon three that might work. He chose the one from Searle, as it had the least reaction in any of the infertile women Chang tested it on. By now, Pincus was confident it would work. With the first round of testing done on infertile women, and done what they believed needed to be done to trick the body into thinking it was already pregnant, they needed to expand the study to hundreds or thousands of women, not the 30 they'd done so far. This would of course have been very expensive, having to get nurses and doctors in America to do this work, never mind all the potential legal ramifications. The best way to solve this problem? Do what generations of corporations have done ever since, outsourcing. Pincus decided that Puerto Rico was a good place to start. No language barrier, a good infrastructure of birth control clinics, with contraception being legal since 1937, and there were plenty of flights to the mainland. With Puerto Rico having a 34% higher fertility rate than the mainland United States, and the average woman having 6.8 children, it was seen as the perfect place to experiment. Such was the need for birth control that many women would have affairs in Puerto Rico with men they knew to be infertile. Setting off to Puerto Rico, in an experiment funded by McCormick, who sent Pincus another cheque for $10,300 to pay for the experiments. Just before Pincus set off for his experiments, headlines all over the world reported on Jonas Salk's work in having developed a vaccine for polio. While at a birth control conference in Puerto Rico, the story broke about how something as easy as an aspirin tablet could be taken to reduce fertility. Far from an outcry, the press was supportive of the attempt. The huge baby boomer increase in population had got many people worried about what it was doing to the country with such rapid population growth. With the news now out, McCormick asked Pincus if he would travel to Tokyo to present a paper on his invention to an international conference on the International Planned Parenthood Federation. There was little testing going on and the product was nowhere near ready, but Pincus shifted his mind to the conference in Tokyo. People were begging to believe the pill was ready, and Pincus could choose to come clean or bluff. Before leaving, McCormick gave Pincus another $10,000, and the two went off to Tokyo. Japan was still bitter towards many Americans, but with the huge population boom after the Second World War in Japan, and having already legalised abortions, with there being 638 legal abortions in Japan in 1935 alone, there was a clear need for this pill. So did Pincus bluff or come clean? Somewhere in the middle. He made claims about his pill, but conveniently left out a bit about it not completely working yet. However, the trip had taught Pincus one thing, as he travelled through a bit of rural Japan and made a detour to the mainland Asia on his way back. He saw how desperately what he was working on was needed. In 1956, Pincus flew to Puerto Rico to find his trials dead. Everybody had quit them. The solution to salvage the trials was to move away from the richer parts and go into the slums, 
where poverty was rife and an extra child could lead to even more poverty. John Rock joined Pincus, and joining them was Edris Rice Wall, a doctor working in Puerto Rico who had many connections to local nurses in the slums. They had 100 women joining up and a control group of 125. Despite all the slum being Catholic, they found only one woman who refused to join the trial out of religious reasons. Over the next few months, lots of women dropped out of study, but they noticed that many of the women who did drop out then got pregnant. Though the pill still wasn't perfect, Pincus claimed this was due to people not following the instructions correctly by not taking it every day. Additionally, there was still an issue with side effects, ranging from dizziness, nausea, headaches and vomiting. By this point, Pincus was getting confident that the pill was getting better, and he began to show it to drug companies. The drug company Pincus chose was one that sold many of the chemicals needed in the first place to make the pill. J.D. Searle Searle was determined to make money on a breakthrough drug. The 1950s had seen a proliferation of drug discoveries that were leading to an exponential growth of companies. Thorzerine had doubled the sales of Smith, Klein and French drug company. While some might wonder what a commercially available pill would lead to in society, and some wondered what it would do to marriage, Jack Searle saw only the bottom line. Knowing they would have a jump on the competition, he backed Pincus. Pincus was still tinkering with the makeup of the drug, but they needed a name for it. The company called it Enovid, which is what they trademarked the pill under. However, Pincus simply called it the pill. It was the most important pill most women would ever take. With much concern at Searle about the side effects, Pincus added estrogen, which he didn't want to do because he thought it might be unsafe, but there were reported to be less side effects. The addition of estrogen led it to be a combined estrogen-pro-estrogen pill. The combined oral contraceptive pill was then born. In an attempt to beat everybody to the market, Searle sought approval for the drug from the FDA, but told them it was for menstrual disorders. The FDA could not say no, and everybody knew it was really a contraceptive pill. All they had to do was prove it did work for menstrual disorders. Two months after submitting it to the FDA, who approved it, the drug was also approved in England. Searle marketed the drug to infertile women to help them regulate their menstrual cycles. They wanted women to discover the drug for themselves. Once the word spread, they would quietly make the preparations to market the drug as a birth control pill. This was slightly undermined by Pinker's giving an interview to the country's biggest women's magazine with a readership of 4 million people all about the drug. But they all knew that while advertising the drug was regulated, doctors could prescribe it how they saw fit. The interview, as you might expect, caused the demand for the drug to rocket. Overnight, the pill became huge. Women were quick to find doctors who would prescribe the pill easily and flocked to their surgeries. After only a couple of years on the market, the pill was being used by most women. Hugh Hefner once said that by 1960, every woman he knew was on the pill. 
The next step was to get the pill able to be sold as an actual contraceptive. This was 1958, where 17 states still had laws banning the sale, distribution or advertisement of contraceptive. But this was the late 1950s and times were beginning to change. In July 1959, Lady Chatterley's lover finally got permission to be published in the United States. The book had been banned for obscenity in much of the Western world. And then, two days later, G.D. Searle officially asked the FDA for permission to approve the pill as birth control. The sexual revolution began in July 1959. After months of debate and wrangling, a doctor in charge of recommending to the FDA, Pascal de Fleece, who, after much thinking, effectively came down on a utilitarian motivation for recommending its approval to the FDA. He wasn't big on the pill, but it was better than backdoor abortions, and the evidence seemed to suggest that the pill was as safe as being pregnant. With all the health issues that pregnant women go through, he decided the pill was better than unwanted pregnancies. May the 9th, 1960, saw the approval for birth control by the FDA. The news was in most papers, but to the men who edited the newspapers, it was not huge news. But to the women of the mid-20th century, it was one of the greatest inventions. Pincus never applied for a patent of the pill. When Salk invented the polio vaccine, he was asked who owned the patent. He said the people owned the patent. If you're being kind, this was also Pincus's reasoning. Another might be that he already owned shares in Searle, and that he might not have been given the patent anyway. The pill liberated 50% of the population. Harvard economist Claudia Golden states that women on the pill were more likely to apply for college and postpone marriage as a direct result of the pill, while it also boosted women's hourly wage by 8% per hour. One of the most widely prescribed medications, it ushered in the sexual revolution and enabled people to enjoy sex far more and men who would not have to worry about pregnancies. I don't believe it should take much convincing for you to believe it was a great invention and life-changing for many people and worthy of a place on the list. Now, it's not often I end this podcast with marketing material, but when Searle gave the drug to the doctors, along with the standard free gifts like pens and notebook, a note was printed on the back of some of the materials. Quote, from the beginning, women have been a vassal to the temple demands and frequently the aberrations of the cyclical mechanism of her reproductive system. Now, to a degree, herefore too unknown, she is permitted normalised enhancement or suspension of cyclic function and procreative potential. Enovid, the first comprehensive regulator of female cyclic function, is here symbolised in an illustration from an ancient Greek mythology, Andromeda freed from her chains. So, for this reason, the combined oral contraceptive pill, the first effective, easy-to-use birth control pill, which later ushered in many more types of contraception, is listed at number 79 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.